Episode 317. Wait, the latest action on drug pricing reform can be found in the infrastructure bill? Today, I speak with Josh LaRosa from the Wynn Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's get a fast bead on what's going on with drug pricing reform, shall we? Every time I wade into these waters, my head about explodes. So I very much appreciate the opportunity to quiz Josh LaRosa from the always well-informed Win Health Group. Here's the goings-on in a nutshell. There's goings-on. This infrastructure bill that's in all the news all over the place right about now, you know what the plan is to fund all those bridges? Yeah, well, part of it is for Medicare to save money on drugs and then apply the savings to cover the costs of all those roads and train tunnels. There are three major potential ways that the federal government might conceive of collecting these drug savings. Number one, they could try to get others to pick up some of the Medicare Part D costs. Others, meaning private payers and pharma manufacturers. Way number two. Also, they can limit how much manufacturers could raise prices via this, in air quotes, inflation rebate proposal. Interestingly, this you can't raise prices more than the rate of inflation or else you have to rebate the difference legislation is also being bandied about for Medicare Part B, as in boy drugs. And those Part B drugs, those are frequently the really expensive ones, i.e. the oncology meds that are infused. And then the third way, number three, to save some shekel that might wind up in the infrastructure bill is permitting HSS, the Department of Health and Human Services, to negotiate for drug prices. This last one is always a hot potato, but the winds might be changing some. On the executive branch front, we also may have a reboot of the most favored nations rule, but I'll let Josh explain that one. In fact, I'll let Josh explain the brouhaha on all of these possibilities. For more information on any of this, read the article that Josh LaRosa and his Win Health Group colleagues wrote for the Commonwealth Fund blog recently. There is a link in the show notes. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Josh LaRosa, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Stacey, thanks so much. It's nice to be here. Okay, so let's talk about legislative options first, just to keep things orderly here. Here we are in April 2021. Where does everyone who's looking for drug pricing reform have their hopes pinned these days relative to potential legislation? As we all know, Congress just recently passed the America Rescue Plan Act of 2021, which was the latest and greatest COVID-19 relief legislation. And so now that that is mostly put to rest, at least for now, folks are looking to now, you might not necessarily expect this to come up in a drug pricing conversation, but folks are looking to congressional action on an infrastructure package. And in this major infrastructure package, which could be a trillion or so dollars, what people are suggesting is that drug pricing reform, specifically the types of drug pricing reform we'd, we'd seen proposed and considered in 2019, could be used as a way to pay for or offset the costs of these expensive infrastructure provisions. 
So basically, we'll do drug pricing reform. Therefore, the government will save a whole lot of money because Medicare, Medicaid. So they're going to save a ton of money on drug spend, and then they can take that money and buy bridges. Exactly. Is this something that like somebody on the fringe is saying? This is actually something that's gotten a lot of interest from a lot of mainstream folks in Congress, notably House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She came out as recently as last week saying that lawmakers are discussing legislation to lower prescription drug prices as part of this next comprehensive legislative package that would likely include infrastructure funding and reforms. So sort of, you know, the leader of the Democratic Party on the House side is coming out in public saying prescription drug prices are sort of a core part of, of House Democrat strategy to fund uh, this package. And, you know, she's on the record as saying, quote, everything's on the table. They're thinking of taking a kitchen sink approach to this. So it's not necessarily a fringe issue, I would say. Well, I think if you say the leader of the party and core issue in the same sentence, that that pretty much sums it up. I have to agree. (laughs) So, okay, what does this kitchen sink then, you know, what's in the sink? What's the list of things that have a greatest potential of winding up under consideration? For drug pricing, at least, the sink is quite expansive, but I think we could just break it down into three major categories. And these will sound familiar to listeners who have been following the drug pricing reform discussion. This came up a lot in, like I said, 2019, when different bills were being considered in in House and Senate on this. The major kind of categories here are, one, redesigning the Medicare Part D benefit structure in order to put more financial liability on manufacturers and insurers and reduce the financial spending on the part of the federal government and beneficiaries. The second is what are referred to as inflation rebates. And the third category is HHS directly negotiating drug prices with drug manufacturers. Let's start with your first item on your list, redesigning the Medicare Part D benefit structure to put less of the onus on the federal government to pay for some of these drugs. How's that shaping up? So right now, the Part D benefit design is pretty complex and there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And so we could you know, have a really long conversation about what that looks like. But I think the upshot here is one, there will be a hard cap placed on out-of-pocket spending for beneficiaries because right now Medicare beneficiaries can pay infinitely each benefit year on their medications. So one of the major sort of beneficiary-oriented provisions of the Part D redesign proposal idea is to place a hard cap such that beneficiaries will, once they hit a certain dollar amount, they just don't pay any more money. Yeah, and that's because there's coinsurance at a certain level. So if you've got coinsurance and the drug costs a million dollars, like obviously that adds up. Exactly, exactly. And so the then the devil sort of is in, in the details, so to speak. So in, in the House package in 2019, the Lower Drug Costs Now Act or HR3, for example, they limited spending at $2,000 for beneficiaries. But then in the Senate Finance package, the Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act of 2019, that put a hard cap at $3,100 for beneficiaries. So there's variance in the details, but sort of the major idea is that beneficiaries would no longer pay anything above those cap amounts. Which is very patient-focused. However, that doesn't reduce government spending. So 
Exactly. Yeah. So there, that's where sort of the other parts of the party redesign proposals come in. Right now, one of the, the largest offenders, so to speak, of high federal spending is in what's called the catastrophic phase of the benefit. Which is nuanced and complicated, but basically the beneficiary who's paying the co-insurance, which was not capped, if you spend enough money on a drug, like if a drug costs enough, you get to, you know, past all the earlier phases and you get into this catastrophic phase. Yeah, that's correct. So right now, the way it's set up is beneficiaries pay 5% forever, basically, in once they reach the catastrophic phase. Plans pay 15% and the remaining 80% is just on the federal government to pay. And so as I'm sure you can imagine, there's some suggestions that encourage higher drug pricing because once you get to the catastrophic phase, manufacturers are barely on the hook. Plans only pay 15% and Medicare is left footing the bill pretty much 80% of it anyway. As a result, there's a lot of interest in in redesigning the different proportions of, of financial liabilities in the catastrophic benefit to put less liability on the federal government and to put more liability on manufacturers and insurers. And then, of course, to eliminate any liability for beneficiaries once they reach that catastrophic phase. So what's their, what's their thinking? How much are manufacturers going to pick up and how much more are the plans themselves going to pay? The proposed amounts vary based on who you ask. So if you look at what the House Democrats were proposing, the federal government would be reduced from 80% to 20% immediately. Insurers would have to pay 50% of costs in the catastrophic phase, and manufacturers would uh, pay the remaining 30%. And that would happen immediately. In the Senate package that was advanced through the Senate Finance Committee, which was you know Republican-led back in 2019, it's a little more of a moderated approach, if you will. There was a phase in, first of all, in this increase in liability. So the federal liability would drop to 60% in the first year that this was implemented, and then again to 40%, and then again to 20% three years later. So the government would, it would be that downward slope. And then at the same time, liability for manufacturers would increase over time, and the liability for insurance would also increase over time. So we've got the hard cap for patients. Mm -hmm. We've got tinkering around with who pays for what in the catastrophic phase. Just to confirm here, we are talking specifically about Medicare Part D. You know, a lot of the really expensive drugs like the oncologics and, you know, anything that's infused, a lot of the specialty pharma falls under Medicare Part B, as in boy, let's not on the table at this juncture. We're, we're talking about D. That's correct. Yes. We're going to have probably the Medicare Part D plans are against this, I'm assuming. It's a little bit of a nuanced question. I mean, certainly, you know, Part D plans are not the happiest about this. Neither are manufacturers, I would say, drug manufacturers. But the answer to the question is a little bit different when you look at this potential reform in light of or against other potential reforms that could potentially be a little bit more impactful and potentially harmful to industry. And so this kind of becomes the lesser evil, so to speak, which is kind of how this rose to prominence in the, in the beginning, especially the fact that, you know, Senate Republicans and Democrats in 2019 were able to kind of coalesce around this. So, but yeah, I would say there are definitely negative implications for, for private industry, especially because they will be liable for more of the spending in the catastrophic phase. 
Yeah, at the same time, though, you don't have necessarily the limitation of a patient who can't afford one of the main reasons why drugs are abandoned is because patients can't afford them. So if you sort of take that off the table, probably, if you're trying to think about the second and third order effects, I'm sure mm -hmm. some consultants are making a lot of money. <laughs> If we're talking about the inflation rebates that you had mentioned as the second potential legislative legislation on the docket, what do you mean there? Yeah, definitely. So inflation rebates, the tagline there is this will require manufacturers to pay a rebate or a financial amount to the federal government that is equal to the amount they raised the prices of drugs above the rate of inflation. So essentially, if drugs, if manufacturers raise drug prices at an exceedingly high rate, then they pay that difference back to the federal government if that exceeds the rate of inflation. The idea for that is to, of course, keep um, drug price increases a little bit more steady and a little bit more moderated over time. Does that encourage drug manufacturers to come out with a crazy high price at launch because they know they're not going to be able to raise the price? You raise a good point. And if these things are done in isolation from one another, then there could be those unintended effects. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but that's, I think, why a lot of these proposals are seen as kind of this comprehensive package in an ideal world, because with the direct negotiations and those types of provisions, that's also intended to curb the tendency for manufacturers to launch drugs at exceedingly high prices. So inflation rebates on their own, actually, probably you raise a good point, could lead to some type of effect in that way. But with other policies in place alongside that, there could be kind of a, a control in place there as well. Yeah, I mean, at a minimum, there's a lot of drugs that are currently on the market that cost a whole lot and go up every year. On the other hand, though, you've got PBMs. Obviously, the age-old dynamic there is, you know, pharma blames PBMs. They have to raise their price so that they can pay increasingly high rebates. And therefore, the net price of the, the drug hasn't really gone up very much. So you wonder whether that inflation rebate is as much controlling what PBMs can ask, unless the PBMs are now going to say to pharma, well, you know, deal with your rebate problem yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's beneficiaries who get caught in the crossfire because when you have these high cost, high rebate drugs, you know, like you said, there's not oftentimes as much of an impact on net prices, which is the primary concern for insurers in terms of, you know, placing drugs on their formularies. But as you know, beneficiary out-of-pocket spending for drugs is a function of the list price. So if we have these unintended incentives that are encouraging growth in high list prices, which might not be a problem necessarily for insurers or PBMs because they get these rebates that make it more affordable to place them on, on their formularies from a business perspective, right? beneficiaries end up paying the price of this, you know, no pun intended, because their out-of-pocket is a function of those list prices. And this is because the co-insurance we were talking about earlier is based on the list price, as you just said. So if the list price is skying out of control, then 5% of an enormously high price, it doesn't matter what happens on the back end with the ultimate net price, the patient's paying 5% of like infinity. Yeah, exactly. That's well put. And I should clarify that that's specific when we're talking about like the coinsurance and how that's a function of list price and not net price. That's all in the realm of Medicare Part D. The interesting part of the inflation rebates actually is that it not only in both the House 
and the Senate drug pricing bills from 2019, both of those had these inflation rebates as applying to not only Medicare Part D drugs, but also Medicare Part B as in boy drugs. So that's a wrinkle. Then the third thing that you were talking about on the legislative docket is HSS directly negotiating with manufacturers on drug prices. That might be a little more self-explanatory because I think everyone understands what negotiating for drug prices means. I think the thing with this one is that it was a hard road to hoe. There was a lot of opposition. What's the likelihood that this is going to happen? It is hard to say. I think the one thing we can be certain of, like you said, is that this does inspire the most controversy, um, not only among Republicans, because Republicans, especially in the last Congress, were just vehemently against any type of HHS direct negotiations with drug manufacturers because they characterize this as price setting. Basically, you lose all 50 members of the Republican camp in the Senate when you introduce negotiations into the mix. It's also not really a universally accepted approach in the Democratic circle as well. Of course, those on the far left really support negotiations, but those that kind of lean more to the moderate side are not as keen on this. And so you have this interesting push and pull. The only thing that I'll say that kind of contradicts everything that I just said, though, is what I just said was sort of the way we we thought about this back in 2019 when drug pricing was at the height of the, the policy priority totem pole in terms of health policy, at least anyway. But now we're seeing maybe a little bit of a, a shift potentially in the way Democrats are coalescing around this. Most recently with the recent introduction of a bill by Senator Amy Klobuchar that would allow, again, HHS to directly negotiate drug prices with manufacturers. So none of that's new. It's a standalone bill, kind of just ideological positioning at this point. But the interesting thing here is that among the 32 other Democrat co-sponsors on this bill, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia was among one of those co-sponsors. And he's sort of seen as, I guess, the most conservative Democrat in Congress and seems to illustrate the contours of what more moderate Democrats are thinking. So the fact that he co-sponsored that bill with Senator Klobuchar sparked some murmurs around would more moderate Democrats support this type of proposal. And that was a proposal about HSS being able to negotiate. Correct, correct. So maybe the tides are shifting a bit, I think is the point that you're making. Yes, exactly. We've talked about MedD redesign. We've talked about the inflation rebates. We've talked about HSS directly negotiating with manufacturers as things in the kitchen sink that the legislation might be considering right now. Let's move on to kind of the second major category of things that might happen relative to the federal government and drug pricing reform. And that second category is things that happen in the regulatory slash administrative arm, things that the White House might do. What's up over there? There's not a whole lot of activity yet on the administrative or the regulatory side of things. I think the Biden-Harris administration is kind of waiting to see where Congress goes on drug pricing in order to then design its own and communicate its own agenda on on drug pricing and how it plans to use those regulatory and administrative levers to do its own work on on drug pricing. And they can be very complementary actions. You know, the, the White House can and HHS, which is the primary federal agency that would do a lot of these things, they can pick up where Congress leaves off. They can do things that resemble what Congress could do if Congress ultimately doesn't act in a certain way. 
So we know because Biden did talk on the campaign trail about the importance of drug pricing and doing something about drug pricing. So we know it's on his radar. But what I'm understanding you say is they're going to enhance in some way what the legislature does. So until the legislature does something, it's a little bit unclear how they're either going to enhance it or do something themselves. That is correct. And that's at least how I see it. Um, and I could give an example if it would help. Yeah, give us a uh, a pivotal example here. Pivotal example. Okay, so as we just talked about in Congress, they are potentially going to consider authorizing HHS to negotiate drug prices directly with manufacturers. The way that this was written in H.R. 3, which was the House Democrat bill in 2019, negotiations between HHS and manufacturers, the ceiling beyond which prices just couldn't go, like there, there would be no way to negotiate above that, would be benchmarked at 120% of the international sales prices of drugs in a catalog of developed nations. So, you know, France, Japan, the UK, they call that international reference pricing. And so basically what this would do is say, Okay, HHS and, you know, drug manufacturer, you can decide on a drug price, but it it just cannot be above 120% of whatever this drug is sold at in these other countries. And the assumption here, which is is in fact true in most cases, is that those sales prices internationally are much lower than the sales price commanded here in the United States. So that's a way to just bake in lower prices from the get-go. So the point is, if the legislature doesn't do that, Medicare can negotiate in the infrastructure bill, then this is something that they could do over on the executive branch to basically, you know, make not the same thing happen, but fix it. So, right. If that doesn't happen in Congress, then HHS can pick up the ball there and say, okay, well, international reference pricing didn't happen in Congress, but we, the Biden-Harris administration, you know, we support international reference pricing. So we're going to do our own work to imbue that type of policy into how Medicare prices its drugs. But instead of doing that through legislation, do that through regulation. And it wouldn't be, I don't want to suggest that HHS could do the same thing, like on its own could do the same thing as what Congress could do. Instead, HHS would have to frame this in terms of a pilot program or a demonstration program that it tests this approach in a time-limited way and, and in a way that doesn't affect the entire market, but does it in a more controlled way. But they would, of course, only want to take that option of testing this and piloting this if it just doesn't happen in a full-blown, full-force way as Congress could do it. Was it though, didn't the Trump administration propose something very similar and it got shot down in court? So yeah, you, that's exactly where I was headed. So this is called the most favored nation model. And this was put forth by the Trump administration. Like you said, it was finalized shortly before his term came to an end. And it was set to go in, into effect earlier this year. But then there was a court order that ruled it invalid, but more so on a legal reason rather than a policy reason. Basically, what they said was the way the regulation was proposed and finalized by HHS under Trump violated the standard way in which th that should happen. So it was a procedural flaw, not not like a, a policy flaw. So Biden could pick up from there if, if he wants to. All right. So we've been through quite a bit today. We've got 
a lot, you know, we've got the things going on in the legislature that are tagged with this infrastructure bill, which is on the docket right now. So, you know, the timeline in, of what's going to happen there, like we're going to find out pretty soon, I would assume, just given the speed with which that is being taken up, the infrastructure bill, I mean. And then the, it sounds like what's going on on the regulatory slash administrative side is going to be a follow-on. So we'll figure out what they're going to be up to a little bit later this year. And I'm going to assume that they will, on the regulatory administrative side, not rush things through, you know, and then get caught up in a procedural tangle, which I'm assuming is going to extend the timeline a bit. So maybe we won't find out what's going on there until later this year, it sounds like. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. The only thing I'll add is that in May, we're likely going to see the president's proposed budget to Congress, which is basically just a fancy document that includes a lot of what the current administration's wish list is for what Congress could do. So it's very much so an ideological positioning, a set of policy proposals that the current administration, the current White House would like Congress to act on. That is likely going to be the first real opportunity that we'll start to see some of that contouring of what the White House may want to do. That doesn't necessarily translate always to what the White House and the executive branch as a whole will do, but that at least could potentially shape some of the conversation such that later in the year, we can maybe see how the president's priorities play out, which again, as you mentioned earlier, will likely be informed and potentially affected by what Congress does or doesn't do later this year as well. Got it. So we will have a signaling of intentions at a minimum in May. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Josh, where can people find out more information about the Wynn Health Group if they are interested in learning more? Yeah. So you can find us online. Our website is winhealth.com, W-Y-N-N-E-H-E-L-T-H.com. We're also on Twitter and LinkedIn if you want to follow us there as well. We you know, continue to post things frequently and provide resources to interested stakeholders and, and those in the industry. And we'd be happy to hear from listeners. Josh LaRosa, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure as always. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.